0: So as we come to our time of um, the ministry of the Word of God, instruction from God's Word, where God, we pray by His Spirit and His Word would really speak to us, we're looking again at Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version Translation. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteousness. Rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Once again, let's pray. God and Father, give us such a measure of your Holy Spirit that we can read, hear, understand, and apply your word faithfully in all areas of our lives, both to the internal condition of our own hearts as well as to the external manifestation of our behavior we pray that we would believe rightly and live rightly and serve you faithfully and above all worship you we ask for this in jesus name amen i want to begin this morning by uh, asking you to think about the uh, temptation of jesus by satan And I'm thinking about the third temptation that we find mentioned in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, where uh, Matthew records this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, there's a couple of reasons why I wanted to begin here this morning. It has to do with the significance of worship. God's greatest enemy recognizes that there's no higher activity, nothing that speaks of greater or ultimate significance and honor Than to be worshipped. And Satan desires. To be worshipped and served. Uh, There would be no. Greater victory over Christ. Than to have the very son of God. Worship the father's greatest enemy. Now. Thankfully Satan failed in this. But we can see that Satan has not stopped. At a second strategy. We can be certain. That Satan's greatest desire against Christians is to keep us from giving God his proper worship in spirit and in truth. And if if we won't worship Satan, then Satan's spiritual warfare strategy against the people of God is to disrupt and disengage us from our essential purpose, which is to worship God properly. Satan's strategy would be to disrupt us in the practice of biblical worship. So, we ought to expect that Satan would be opposing the gathering of God's people for corporate worship. Satan would be opposing gospel-centered and biblically organized patterns of worship. And Satan would be opposing the centrality of God's word to guard and to guide our way In worshiping God. He opposes the purpose for which God has redeemed us. And so if we're not ignorant of Satan's uh, particular schemes, then we will be prayerfully careful to keep the theme of our own lives, our redemptive themes in front of us at all times. And as we've been looking at since January, the main theme of our lives as believers is this. God has redeemed us in order to restore to us the purpose of worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And that's the justification for this series that we've been conducting on the worship elements in our worship service. We've come to that part of the series in which we're looking at instruction from God's word. And the key truth here is this. We are worshiping God when we are living obediently to his word from the heart. Now, we began to look at this a couple of Sundays ago. Uh, Our text, as we have it before us this morning, was Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. The key idea uniting all of these eight verses is the concept of obedience. And we need to remember that it is a gospel truth that faithful obedience is the defining expression of our love for Christ. And that happens to be the actual teaching of Jesus himself. In John chapter 14, both in verse 21 and 23, and Jesus has said this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then in verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So we understand that true love for Christ entails keeping his commandments. And in faithful obedience, we have the promise of Christ that God himself will come and abide and live and dwell and make his abode with us. And truly, that is the Old Testament idea of the believer's blessedness. Genuine happiness is having the presence of God as that which gives us our greatest contentment, our greatest fulfillment. To be blessed of God is to have his fellowship, his presence abiding with us. Fellowship, communion with God, service to God, worship of God are all intimately connected and inseparable parts of what it means to do all to the glory of God. Now, That's the background that really sets up the context for coming once again to our text here in Psalm 119. The basic idea, the message of these eight verses is this. We are worshiping God when we are living obediently to his word from the heart. Now, as we noticed a couple of weeks ago, uh, these eight verses have four natural divisions. Verses one through three, focus upon God's promise and our obedience. Verse four in particular, God's command and our obedience. And then today I want us to look at verses five and six, where it speaks to our prayer and obedience, and then verses seven and eight, our worship and obedience. And once again, The unifying theme, the main idea connecting all of these eight verses is this. We are worshiping God when we are living obediently to his word from the heart. So, verses five and six, our prayer and obedience. And I want us to look at verse five in particular and by itself first. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Now, This is a sigh that is a prayer. It's a prayer that is a sigh. That is to say, it's an expression of the heart of David. It lays bare the heart of the believer who truly desires to obey God in God's required way. And immediately there's two observations that we need to make. This verse expresses a yearning. Godly people must have this yearning, this yearning to walk with Christ. The yearning that our walk with Christ would be steadfast in obedience. But secondly, this yearning is clearly connected to a sense of weakness. We see this in the fact that David prays this way. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. It's because David feels the weakness that his ways are not always steadfast in keeping God's statutes. And so, thinking about David, thinking about ourselves, we see in ourselves this disconnect, this divide, this separation between our best and truest desires to obey and please God with our whole hearts, and then the reality that our walk with Christ can actually be so inconsistent. So we need to think about the biblical truth that lies behind this prayer. And here we have the key admission. We can see what God desires. Obedience. Even diligent obedience. We can understand that this is what is pleasing to him. We can also know with certainty that our truest happiness, our truest blessedness are ultimately to to be found in humble obedience to our Lord Jesus. Yet we see in ourselves that we cannot do what God requires in our own strength. Even our renewed, regenerate nature does not have the power to keep God's commandments diligently in our own strength. And that makes the prayer of St. Augustine from his confessions so biblical and truthful when he prayed to God, grant what you command and command what you desire. It expresses, but it's so biblical. We cannot do what God requires in our own strength. We need the help of God to walk and to stay in the path of obedience. And that is the yearning and that is the motivation of this prayer. Now, I want you to think about how Jesus himself has connected these two things, our deep weaknesses and our need to pray with respect to them. He does this graphically in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was betrayed. Christ goes to pray, and he takes with him Peter, James, and John to move away from the other eight disciples. And when he pulls them apart, when he calls them apart, Jesus says to them as he asked them to pray, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation because the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Mark fourteen thirty eight, And then Jesus goes further on by himself to plead his agonizing prayers with the father. Uh, the flesh is so weak The natural strength of the disciples was so weak toward Christ and what Christ was asking them to do that each time he returned, he found them sleeping instead of praying. Now, the Apostle Paul taught this same teaching about walking in obedience. While we are in this world, in this life, we will face constant opposition to living and walking in a godly way. Our flesh is very weak to what is godly and obedient, but so strongly oriented toward what is worldly and sinful. And Paul describes that for us, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. When Paul says to the Galatians, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So on the one side of the spiritual struggle, Paul places the desires of the flesh, and on the other side, the desires of the spirit, they act in opposition to each other. Now the flesh here is the sinful corruption that we have inherited from Adam, and the spirit is the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who gives us a mind and a heart to have that true heart for obedience, that true desire for obedience, that is a willing spirit. And Paul says that these stand in opposition to each other so that we're kept from doing the things we want to do. Now, the solution and answer that Paul gives is this. It's the answer that the scriptures have always given to this internal fight. It's dependence on God and his power to work in us, to will and to do his good pleasure, is to depend upon God for the obedience that we yearn for. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. That is, walk by the Spirit's power, by the Spirit's presence, by the Spirit's direction. Walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit of God. Because here is the biblical truth. Every particle of obedience must come from God. But not passively. It's never a let go and let God. But rather it begins with seeking God as it says in verse 2 to seek God with our whole heart. And that means to pray for God's grace to help us. That means we are to believe and trust and have faith that God's help and strength are truly available to us. That means we choose to trust God rather than our own strength or the wisdom of our own hearts. It is to pray Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So here we have in verse five, David sighs. He prays as he sighs that God would make his way steadfast in the keeping of God's statutes. And so must we. We must join the yearning for obedience, to pray for obedience and trusting, not in ourselves, but in the strength that God provides. And then verse six gives us an outcome. Uh, What David says there is, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eye fixed on all your commandments. Now, shame is a feeling a devastating feeling of, of failure and defilement, obedience and dependence upon God grants to us freedom from this shame and the blessedness of that fellowship with God. If we were made for God and made if we were made by God and made for God, then we find our truest happiness in our relationship and fellowship with God. He's the ultimate and essential element of true happiness, blessedness. And this belongs to the person who obediently follows the word of the Lord, who is guided and guarded by the Lord's word in all of life. Always keeping this in mind, it is worship of God when we pray for his grace to be steadfast in keeping his statutes to pray to God that we would live in dependence upon him. Now that then leads us finally to verses 7 and 8. We see that the first section of Psalm 119 ends by pointing us specifically to our worship and obedience. So verse 7 first, where David says, I will praise you with an upright heart, When I learn your righteous rules. Now, think about what verse seven is teaching. When David learns God's rules, his statutes, his testimonies, as he sits under the teaching of the word, when he's instructed from the ministry of the word, the word of God functions as a means of grace, a means of grace that leads him to the praise of God. This is one of the most important concepts in understanding the Bible and its purpose. God has given his word as a means of grace to lead his people to worship and to praise him. Now, we see an example of this later in Psalm 119 and in verse 62, David writes, At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. It should not be surprising to us that God's word functions to bring us to obedience to our purpose, the purpose for which Christ has redeemed us. So I want us to think this through. I want us to realize the, the implications of what David is writing about here. So consider John seventeen seventeen. This is found in the context of Jesus' prayer. It's called, Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's where he's specifically praying for his disciples and for all future believers. And so in verse 17, Jesus asks of the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, this word of Jesus himself specifically teaches us that God sanctifies his redeemed through the scriptures, through God's word, God's word that is truth. But we must never forget that the central idea of sanctification is always a combination of two things. Sanctification is both a calling and character. Sanctification first means for something to be set apart unto a sacred purpose unto God, and then that's the calling part. But secondly, it means to be qualified in holiness for that service, and that's the character part. So God uses his word in our lives to keep setting us apart for our sacred calling, and God keeps using his word constantly in our lives to transform us In the holiness of character, that then will show up and manifest itself in obedience to God's word. Now, to develop that further, I want you to think about Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. This is the next heavenly scene that we see in the book of Revelation in chapter 5. There we see the lamb uh, taking up the scroll with seven seals. We see the four living creatures surrounding the Lamb who is upon the throne. We see the 24 elders falling down to worship the Lamb and to sing a new song. And they say, verse 9 and 10, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our god and they shall reign upon the earth now right there we have depicted for us the saving work of Christ and the saving work of Christ there is specifically connected to the purpose of the redeemed they are redeemed in order to be a kingdom a priest and of course the idea of priest a priest or a priesthood in scripture is completely wrapped up in the function and purpose of worship. The purpose of the redeeming work of Christ is to restore us to this calling of worship. And God uses his word in accordance with the prayer of Christ to sanctify us unto that purpose, the purpose of worship. Now the apostle Peter uses similar language based upon the same background of Old Testament biblical things of a kingdom and a priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 9, where Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now here again is is a specific purpose statement with respect to redemption, as well as a specific purpose statement with respect to the redeemed. Uh, God has saved us that we might proclaim the excellencies of the God who saves, who called us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His marvelous light And the word excellencies here also means and can be translated as praises. So what verse seven teaches is this. When we are instructed from the ministry of the word, the word of God functions as a means of grace to sanctify us unto our purpose, to engage us, to enable us to be obedient to our purpose which is to live for the praise of God. When we learn the righteous rules of God, then we will praise God with an upright heart. For such the Father seeks to worship him, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Then lastly, we come to verse eight, where David writes, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Now, here we have a statement of David's intent. I will keep your statutes, which makes sense. Because David has told us that God's promise of a truly blessed life is connected to our obedience. And that God, for the sake of that blessedness, commands our obedience. And then God teaches us here to pray for God's grace to enable us in that obedience. And we know that that genuine obedience will lead to us living out our purpose, which is to worship and to praise and to serve the living God, which is the very location of our truest happiness, our greatest blessedness to fulfill this purpose, to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so it makes all sense for David to come to the statement, I will keep your statutes because therein lies the blessedness of, of dwelling in the presence of God and God dwelling in our presence as well. Of course, always an obedience enabled by God himself. There is no particle of our obedience that ever comes except by the strength and grace of God. Of God. We are most deeply satisfied when we are most full of God. But then we have this last line Do not utterly forsake me. And as a prayer, it seems to strike a discordant note. It sounds off-key. If the theme is God's blessedness to his redeemed people, if God has himself given his word for the sake of our blessedness and given his son for the sake of our blessedness, it seems strange to end this first section on what seems to be a, a prayer of fear, fear that God might forsake him. And so we ask this question, is David really fearful? And this is to ask, has the Holy Spirit inspired David to express this prayer which expresses fear that God might forsake him? I believe we can safely say that this is not what David intends and not what the spirit has inspired. Rather, we need to see here what is in fact a figure of speech that here we have actually a figurative expression that expresses a very significant kind of prayer on David's part. Now let me explain the figure of speech. Uh, The word itself is, Lytotus, Lytotus. Now, you are actually very familiar with this figure of speech, even if you've never had a name for it, since you have used this figure of speech so very, very often. So let me give you some examples. You might say to someone, well, it's not rocket science. And what you mean is it's really relatively simple. Or you might say, well, he's no spring chicken meaning he's actually somewhat old. Or you might say, it's not my first rodeo, meaning I've done this often enough. Uh, You might say, he's not the brightest bulb in the lamp, which might be a a way of saying, well, he's rather slow about these things. You might say something like, you won't be sorry you bought this kitchen mixer, meaning, in fact, you're going to be quite happy. You might say, I don't deny that it was wrong, meaning you really know it was actually quite wrong. You could say, well, the trip wasn't a total loss, meaning, well, it was actually almost a disaster. You could say, he doesn't always have the best sense of direction, meaning he really can't find his way around by himself. All of these express what the dictionary defines this way. Lytotus well, is a figure of speech and a form of understatement in which a sentiment is expressed ironically by negating its contrary. Yeah, that was really easy to understand, right? That's why I gave us several examples. In simple terms, it means this. We say it is not this. We mean, but it's rather Almost the opposite. We say it's not this, but we actually mean something that's virtually the opposite. The New Testament has a very special favorite litotis that it uses repeatedly. Quote, I am not ashamed, unquote, or to not be ashamed. And let me give you several examples. In Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Paul means by this the opposite of being ashamed. Paul actually glories in the gospel. Second Timothy 1.8, Paul says to Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul wants Timothy to find his greatest confidence in the gospel and also in Paul's faithful ministry. And then four verses later, 2 Timothy one twelve, Paul says, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against the day. Paul is expressing the very opposite of shame. He's glorying in Christ and salvation. This also occurs twice in the book of Hebrews, once upon the lips of Christ and then secondly with respect to God the Father. We find in Hebrews to 11, the Hebrew writer saying this for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's of Christ. Uh, yeah, Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers, rather he glories in calling us brothers. And then Hebrews eleven sixteen but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Uh, God the Father glories in being called our God. So when David concludes this section with this prayer, do not forsake me utterly. The force of this prayer is to state the virtual opposite. It's intended to mean this, God accept me and keep me fully and completely. You see, David has no real fear of God rejecting him or forsaking him. That would be the worst thing imaginable. While its opposite is the best thing possible. And that is David's prayer. God Never do the worst to me, but do the best that is possible. God, always keep me in your ways. Now, to wrap up then, this is what we need to remember. God has redeemed us in order to restore to us the purpose of worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And when we are living obediently to his word from the heart, then we are truly worshiping God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we we would ask again, instruct us by your word. And may your word ever be sanctifying grace to us, a means of grace that grips us and guides us and guards us in every way and your ways, that your truth would transform us, that your truth would set us apart, that we would know that our deepest fulfillment is found in blessedness in you, And that there is to be found in faithful obedience to you from a whole heart, your abiding presence with us. And this is what we would pray for. That as we have fellowship with you and communion with you and serve you, that it would be impossible that we would not also at the same time be worshiping you. And we would pray for the sake of Christ, by the power of the cross, through the work of your Holy Spirit, that in everything we do, we would do it all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.